Welcome everyone to episode 13 of Curseland, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. I am your host and sole proprietor of Curseland, which can be found at www.curse.land. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get started. In recent decades, the United States has become a world leader in gun violence, particularly mass shootings. Sadly, it seems like every few months that one troubled person will take out their anger or hatred on a large group of people and do so with a gun. But when did this begin? Murder has been a part of the human experience since the beginning, and gun violence is nothing new. But when exactly did this large-scale practice of mass shootings begin, at least in the U.S.? And this story is from allthatsinteresting.com. Walk of Death, the disturbing story of modern American history's first mass shooting, by Katie Serena. While there may be no easy answer, some believe it all started with a man named Howard Unruh. On September 6, 1949, Howard Unruh walked through his hometown of Camden, New Jersey, and fatally shot 13 people in just 12 minutes. It quickly became known as the Walk of Death, and it may also very well be the first mass shooting in American history. Many experts believe Howard Unruh, born in Camden on January 21, 1921, had always shown signs of being disturbed all the way back to his early childhood. A psychiatric evaluation performed after the shooting showed he'd had a rather prolonged period of toilet training as a child and hadn't walked or talked until he was 16 months old. At the time, his late blooming didn't strike anyone as being odd, though post-arrest evaluations seized on these details. But aside from his delayed maturity, Howard Unruh hadn't displayed any significantly unusual behaviors. His parents separated when he was young, and he and his younger brother James were raised by their mother Frida afterward. His school records showed that he was shy and had ambitions to work for the government. After high school, Unruh joined the army and was deployed to serve in the European theater of World War II. Certain incidents from his time there would likewise later be looked back upon as signs of his being disturbed. While his commanders reported that Howard Unruh was a competent soldier and a good marksman, it was his personal behavior that worried others. While in combat, Unruh kept a diary in which he recorded every German soldier he killed. He would note the time, date, and circumstance, and describe the aftermath and the body in incredible, gory detail. James would later recall that after returning from the war, his brother was never the same. Indeed, after coming home in 1945, Howard Unruh spent four miserable years living with his mother in Camden, slowly turning into an even more disturbed and psychotic young man. During the four years between leaving the army in 1945 and his walk of death in 1949, Howard Unruh spent his time keeping track of every perceived personal affront made against him and thinking up ways to make the offenders pay. Two persistent sources of perceived affronts were neighbors Maurice and Rose Cohen, who owned the pharmacy below Unruh's home and whose backyard abutted his. They'd squabbled over a gate he'd put up between their yards. Rose had yelled at Unruh about the volume of his music, and Maurice had reportedly called the indeed homosexual Unruh a queer. For this, and plenty of other affronts, both real and imagined, Howard Unruh was about to get his revenge. On the evening of September 5, 1949, Howard Unruh put himself to sleep the same way he had every night for the past four years, by running through the laundry list of people, mostly his neighbors, who he felt had offended him and all the ways he could make them pay. 
He was particularly angry that night because when he'd arrived home, he'd noticed that the garden gate he'd recently installed between his yard and the Cohen's had been broken. For Unra, who had slowly been becoming unhinged, this was the final straw. Tomorrow, he would do what he'd been dreaming of for years. Get revenge on all those who had upset him. The next morning, September 6th, Unra awoke to a breakfast being prepared by his mother, as usual. And, as usual, the two squabbled over a small matter. However, this particular squabble appeared to have escalated as Unra's mother stormed out of the home she shared with her son and left for a neighbor's house at around 9.10. Ten minutes later, Howard Unra emerged from the house, armed with a German Luger P08 a 9mm pistol he'd purchased in Philadelphia for less than $40. First on his kill list was a local shoemaker named John Polarchik, who he shot and killed instantly. Next, Unruh walked over to the local barber shop, where proprietor Clark Hoover was cutting the hair of a six-year-old boy named Oris Smith, who sat atop an old carousel horse as Hoover worked while the boy's mother sat nearby. Unruh shot the boy first, then Hoover. He ignored the mother. Back on the street, Unruh shot seemingly aimlessly at a boy in a window who managed to avoid the shot. Then, Unruh turned his attention to a tavern across the street into which he fired multiple shots, though he himself didn't actually go inside. Witnesses would later recall Unruh walking carelessly through the street, almost meandering, with a stoic look on his face as he fired shots into the bar. Shockingly, no one in the tavern was hurt. After the tavern, Howard Unruh headed to the local drugstore, the workplace of perhaps his most sought-after targets, Maurice Cohen, and his wife, Rose. While he was on his way to the drugstore, a bystander accidentally walked into Unruh. Unruh shot him without a second thought. The Coens saw Unra coming, but weren't quick enough. Cohen's wife, Rose, who had been hiding in a closet, was shot several times. Cohen's mother, Minnie, who had been attempting to call the police, was also shot. Finally, Unra shot Maurice, who had attempted to escape onto the roof. The shot propelled Maurice off the roof and onto the pavement below. Still, though, Howard Unra was not finished. He shot a passerby in a car who had slowed down at the sight of Cohen's body on the street. He then turned around and shot at another car, killing the driver and two of the passengers. Finally, he made his way to the tailor shop in search of his final two victims. Unfortunately, the tailor wasn't home, so unrest settled for shooting his wife. Then, in what he would admit was his only mistake that day, unrest shot at what he thought was a shadow, but turned out to be a two-year-old child playing with a toy. By the end of the walk of death, a mere 12 minutes from start to finish, Howard Unruh had killed 12 people and injured four. One of the injured would later die from his wounds, bringing the death toll of what may have been American history's first mass shooting to 13. Following the unintentional killing of the two-year-old and knowing the police had been alerted and were on their way, Howard Unruh ran back to his home and barricaded himself in. By then, the police had surrounded the area and were intent on bringing Unra in alive. At the time, there was little police protocol in place for such an incident. Should they enter the home? Should they wait for him to come out? Should they simply open fire? Across town, while the police plotted their next move, local newspaper editor Philip Buxton, who had heard of the commotion, got an idea. Looking up Unra's phone number in the phone book, he simply called the man. And to his surprise, Howard Unruh answered. Buxton recorded the transcription of the call. Is this Howard? Yes. What's the last name of the party you want? Unruh. What's the last name of the party you want? Unruh. I'm a friend, and I want to know what they're doing to you. They're not doing a damn thing to me, but I'm doing plenty to them. How many have you killed? I don't know yet because I hadn't counted them, but it looks like a pretty good score. Why are you killing people? I don't know. I can't answer that yet. I'm too busy. 
At this point, Buxton heard gunfire in or near the Unruh home. I'll have to talk to you later. A couple of friends are coming to get me. It was then that the police decided what to do. Crawling up to the roof, police dropped tear gas into Unruh's home through a window. Shortly after, he expressed his intent to surrender. As he walked out, the police patted him down and cuffed him. One asked him just what he'd been thinking. What's the matter with you? He demanded. You a psycho? I am no psycho, Howard Unruh replied. I have a good mind. A police investigation followed Howard Unruh's arrest, though it was hardly necessary. He confessed immediately and took full responsibility for the shootings. He gave the police a detailed description of what had happened, and police noted the same careless, stoic attitude witnesses had reported seeing in Unruh as he shot up the tavern. At that point during the interview, just after the arrest, one of the police officers noticed blood pooling on the floor under Unruh's chair. Sometime during the day, Unruh wasn't quite sure when, he'd been shot in the leg. He was taken to the hospital, though the bullet couldn't be recovered. Instead, he was patched up and shipped off to the psychiatric unit at Trenton Psychiatric Hospital. Over the course of his stay, dozens of psychiatrists attempted to figure out what drove him to kill, though none were entirely successful. The farthest they got was getting Unruh to admit that what he'd done was wrong. Murder's a sin, he told him, and I should get the chair. But, alas, Unruh would never truly answer for that sin. In 2009, Howard Unruh died in the Trenton Psychiatric Hospital. His last words were reportedly, I'd have killed a thousand if I had enough bullets. Never having stood trial for what may have been the first modern mass shooting in American history. Now here's another story from the Kentucky Book of the Dead. It's entitled, Embalming in the Old Days. The Egyptian Book of the Dead provides details about the ancient art of embalming, so the Kentucky Book of the Dead must do no less. What follows is an overview of the process as it was in the good old days when grandfather's grandfather went to funerals, marveled at the lifelike cadavers, and wondered, hey, how'd they do that? before trudging home and having nightmares. At first, of course, there was no embalming in Kentucky or anywhere else. Funerals were held and bodies were buried as quickly as possible after death, especially in the summertime or during outbreaks of contagious diseases. However, medical science was not always adept in those days at determining whether a person was really dead or merely in a coma, with occasional horrifying results described elsewhere in this book. Embalming was slow to catch on. It became widely accepted only during the Civil War, when families who could afford it would arrange to have their dead, soldier kin embalmed and shipped home for burial, rather than being sent to a mass grave or a battlefield cemetery. The true genius of preserving the dead during this era was Dr. Thomas Holmes, who invented a safe and affordable embalming fluid. He charged $100 for mummifying officers and offered families of enlisted men a cut-rate fee of $25. When President Lincoln was assassinated at the end of the war, his body was embalmed, to the point of being nearly petrified, some said, and sent on a tour of several cities, convincing thousands of mourners that pickling their loved ones was a splendid idea. By the early 1880s, the procedure was widely accepted and practiced in America. It was common in most large Kentucky cities, but it took decades to catch on in the mountain counties and in rural areas. In small towns, the funerary trappings were likely to consist only of a wake, coins on the corpse's eyes to keep them from flipping open and discombobulating viewers, and strips of cloth to bind the jaws and arms. A funeral service would be held, either in the church or at the home of the deceased. For this final farewell, the body would be dressed in his or her Sunday best. Afterward, the body would be buried just as quickly as possible 
before it commenced returning to the elements. Usually the coffin was homemade and placed in a wooden outer box, the precursor of the modern concrete underground vault. While there were community cemeteries, most rural folk were buried in family cemeteries located near their former homes. For the dead fortunate enough to be embalmed, the process in those days consisted of removing the stomach's contents using an injection pump called a trocar, a device invented in 1878. Some embalming fluid entered the body by way of the mouth and nostrils, while the chest and abdomen were preserved by injecting fluid into the organs with a tube. If the body had to be displayed for an extended length of time, the veins were filled with the fluid by injecting it into the femoral or carotid artery. Funeral directors claimed that it was possible for a body to be preserved indefinitely depending on the circumstances of its death and how much fluid was pumped into the remains. Some wax eye caps were placed on the optics of the dead to prevent that unpleasant sunken-in look. If the dearly departed happened to have been consumptive, the undertaker would use injected fluid or ice to fill out the features of the countenance. Should the cadaver bear an inappropriate expression such as terror, surprise, or hate, or maybe if it died with a big happy grin, the mortuary artiste would relax its facial muscles with warm embalming fluid and then massage the face into a look of sweet repose. The secret weapon of yesterday's undertakers was ice. They used it to preserve bodies until embalming could be performed or as a means of temporarily preserving corpses for relatives who could not afford an embalming and thus had to have a quickie funeral. As already mentioned, some morticians used ice to freeze the faces of the dead in a winsome expression. The ice had to be carefully disposed of, especially if the defunct had passed away due to an infectious disease. On one especially repulsive occasion in 1885, some Louisville children saw discarded ice on the sidewalk and, it being a hot summer's day, they gave in to their natural instincts and ate some of it, afterward becoming sicker than they ever could have wished. It turned out to be, as the happy reader has already deduced, unwholesome ice that had been carefully tossed out by an undertaker. After the body was embalmed, it had to be dressed, properly coffined, and its funeral services held. The trappings included a horse-drawn hearse, carriages for the mourners, gloves and badges for the pallbearers, and of course the absurdly elaborate and costly mourning clothes of the period. Caskets in the late 1880s cost between $75 and $500, and an average funeral cost anywhere from $250 to $350. In a major metropolis such as New York City, that is. In 1891, a Louisville undertaker, E.C. Pearson, estimated that an average local funeral cost between $100 and $200. A dirt cheap, no frills, the neighbors will laugh at your burial could cost as little as $30, including a $12 casket. Undoubtedly, funerals were even cheaper in the state's small towns. Just for the historical record, the first female embalmer and funeral director in Kentucky was Mrs. E.H. Wyatt of Louisville, who hung out her shingle in August 1895. She won raves from the medical establishment for her mastery of the hypodermic embalming method, which was exactly what it sounds like. President Harry S. Truman knew that one bomb would not be enough to force Japan to surrender, so he ordered two. What many don't know is that there was a third bomb in reserve, just in case. From the website AmusingPlanet.com, this story is called Demon Core. How the third nuclear bomb destined for Japan killed a bunch of American scientists. This third bomb had not been assembled yet, but its plutonium core, the heart of the bomb, was ready and kept at the Los Alamos National Laboratory. When it became clear a third bomb would not be necessary, nuclear scientists at Los Alamos were delirious with excitement. Here there was in their hands the rarest of the rare metal, a 6.2 kilogram core of pure plutonium. 
They probed and prod the shiny metallic sphere and subjected it to countless experiments until two sloppy scientists nearly blew up the laboratory and ruined it for everyone. Both of them were dead within days and the core acquired the nickname Demon Core. Nuclear bombs are different from conventional bombs. There are no fuses or detonators. What we have instead is a mass of nearly critical radioactive materials. At the time of detonation, this mass is made supercritical by bringing more radioactive materials close together so that flying neutrons knock out more neutrons free from other atoms, creating a self-sustaining chain reaction. At that time, there was no easy method to determine how much uranium or plutonium would be required to achieve critical mass, so scientists figured it out the hard way. At the head of the critical assemblies group was Otto Robert Frisch, an Austrian physicist. Frisch's method was simple and dangerous. Frisch cut up the fissile materials into small bars, three centimeters long, and stacked them up while keeping an eye on his radiation meter until criticality was achieved. To help slow down the reaction, he used uranium hydride instead of pure uranium. One day, Frisch almost caused a runaway reaction when he casually leaned on the stack of uranium bars, causing his body to reflect neutrons back into the stack. Out of the corner of his eye, he caught the red lamps that flickered intermittently when neurons were around, glow continuously. Realizing what was happening, Frisch quickly scattered the bars with his hand. Frisch received a generous amount of radiation in the mishap, but not large enough to kill him. The same, however, could not be said for his fellow scientists who were to repeat his experiments later. The first fatality was 24-year-old physicist Harry K. Daglian, Jr. Daglian was working alone late on the night of August 21, 1945, building a neutron reflector. He was placing bricks of tungsten carbide around the sphere of plutonium to see how many bricks it would take to reflect enough neutrons back into the core for it to go critical. While working on the experiment, the neutron counter he used to measure the radiation coming off the plutonium core indicated that placing the last brick would cause the assembly to go supercritical. So Daglian stopped and cautiously retracted his hand which held the brick he was about to lay. But then he dropped it right over the core. The moment the brick hit the assembly, the core went supercritical. Daglian reported seeing a blast of blue light and a wave of heat. He instinctively knocked the dropped brick back to the floor with his hand, but it was too late. In those few moments, Daglian received a fatal dose of radiation. He died 25 days later from acute radiation poisoning. A security guard who was sitting at his desk 12 feet away when Daglian dropped the brick developed radiation-caused leukemia and died 33 years later. You might think that a mishap as such would prompt scientists to become more cautious when conducting further critical mass experiments, which renowned physicist Richard Feynman likened to tickling the tail of a sleeping dragon. Yet, exactly nine months later, a second accident occurred with the exact same core. This time, senior physicist Louis Sloten, who succeeded Otto Robert Frisch, was conducting a different type of criticality experiment with the plutonium core. Sloten's method involved lowering half a shell of beryllium over the core until the core was just about completely covered. The beryllium shell reflected the neutrons radiated by the core back into the core until the core achieved critical state. The idea was to stop just before this stage. Sloten used the blade of a flathead screwdriver, which he wedged between the two components to keep them apart. The screwdriver was the only thing that kept Sloten and his fellow scientists safe from certain doom. Sloten conducted this experiment so many times in the past that he became brash. That afternoon of May 21, 1946, Sloten arrived in his trademark blue jeans and cowboy boots and began tickling the dragon's tail in front of seven colleagues but this time his screwdriver slipped. The beryllium shell fell completely covering the core and in an instant the room was covered with a flash of bright blue light as the core went supercritical. Everybody started yelling at once. There was total pandemonium. The security guard in the room understood very little what was happening, but when he saw that blue flash and others started yelling, he ran out of the room and continued running towards the hills. 
He was later called back as the scientists tried to figure out where everybody was standing and estimate how much radiation each received. Sloten, who was closest to the core, took the bulk of the blow. He was exposed to over 1,000 rads of radiation, a terribly high dose anyone has ever taken. For comparison, when the bomb went off in Hiroshima, the radiation at a distance of one kilometer from ground zero was 400 rads. According to physicist Raymer Schreiber, who was present in the room during the fatal slip of the screwdriver, Sloten's first words immediately after the incident were, well, that does it. He died after an agonizing nine days in the hospital. Nuclear weapon historian Alex Wellerstein provides a description of Sloten's deteriorating health from the day of the incident to his death. Sloten vomited once prior to being examined, and several times more in the next few hours, but stopped the next morning. His general health seemed acceptable, but his left hand, initially numb and tingling, became increasingly painful. This was the hand that had been closest to the core, and scientists later estimated that it had received more than 15,000 rem of low-energy x-rays. Sloten's whole body dose was around 2,100 rem of neutrons, gamma rays, and x-rays. 500 rem is usually fatal for humans. The hand eventually took on a waxy, blue appearance and developed large blisters. Sloten's physicians kept it packed in ice to limit the swelling and the pain. His right hand, which had been holding the screwdriver, suffered lesser versions of these symptoms. On the fifth day, Sloten's white blood cell count dropped dramatically. His temperature and pulse began to fluctuate. From this day on, the patient failed rapidly, the medical report noted. Sloten suffered nausea and abdominal pain and began losing weight. He had internal radiation burns, what one medical expert called a three-dimensional sunburn. By the seventh day, he was experiencing periods of mental confusion. His lips turned blue and he was put in an oxygen tent. Eventually, he sank into a coma. He died nine days after the accident at the age of 35. Standing near Sloten and watching over his shoulder was Graves. Sloten's body partially shielded him, so he received a high but non-lethal dose of radiation. Graves was hospitalized for several weeks with severe radiation poisoning and developed chronic neurological and vision problems as a result of the exposure. He died 20 years later, at age 55, of a heart attack, which may or may not have been caused by radiation exposure. Another physicist, Marion Edwards Sislicki, died of acute myelocytic leukemia 19 years after the accident. It took two deaths for Los Alamos to finally bring an end to hands-on criticality experiments. They were always known to be dangerous. Enrico Fermi himself had warned Sloten that he would be dead within a year if he continued performing the test in that manner. Further experiments were carried out using remote control machines and TV cameras while all personnel stood at a quarter-mile distance. The plutonium core that killed Daglian and Sloten was originally nicknamed Rufus, but after the accidents, it came to be called the Demon Core. After the accident, the core was still highly radioactive and needed time to cool off. It was slated for test at Crossroads, but when the test was canceled, the core was melted and the material was recycled to make new cores. In front of City Hall in Athens, Georgia, United States, stands an unusual cannon from the American Civil War. It's a double-barreled cannon, but unlike other multiple-barrel cannons of the past, the double-barreled cannon of Athens was designed to fire two solid cannonballs connected together by a length of iron chain. The two barrels pointed slightly away from each other, so that when they're fired together, the cannonballs would spread to the full length of the chain and mow down enemy soldiers like a scythe cutting wheat on a field, or so was the idea. The story is from TheAmusingPlanet.com. It's called The Double-Barreled Cannon of Athens. The bizarre weapon was invented in 1862 by a man named John Gilliland, who was a dentist, a local house builder, and a private in a home guard company. Gilliland thought that a weapon of such deadly power would serve the defenses of his community and the needs of the Confederate Army very well. 
The few interested citizens pooled their money together, and the gun was forged at Athens Steam Company. Cast in one piece, the gun featured side-by-side bores, each a little over three inches in diameter, and splayed slightly outward so the shots would diverge and stretch out the chain taut. Each barrel had its own touch hole, so it can be fired independent of the other, and a common touch hole in the center is designed to fire both barrels simultaneously. Upon completion, Gilliland took his new cannon north of Athens to a field near Newton Bridge for a test firing. It didn't go as intended. According to reports, when Gilliland touched the cannon off the first time, the two barrels did not fire simultaneously, which caused the balls to swirl around erratically across the field, plowing up about an acre of ground, destroying a cornfield, and mowing down saplings, before the chain broke, sending the two balls in two different directions. On the second firing, the balls shot towards a thicket pines and left a gaping hole as if, according to one eyewitness, a narrow cyclone or a giant mowing machine had passed through. A third firing was attempted. This time, the chain broke immediately. One ball tore into a nearby cabin and knocked down its chimney, while the other veered off and struck a nearby cow, killing it instantly. Incredibly, Gilliland considered the test firings a success. After all, there was wholesale destruction and slaughter. He tried to sell the gun to the Confederate States Army's arsenal in Augusta, but the arsenal commandant there found the gun unsuitable for use and sent the cannon back to Athens. Gilliland continued to try to promote his invention to other military leaders around Augusta, but failed to interest anyone. Eventually, the gun was used as a signal gun in Athens to sound out warning against advancing Yankees. After the war ended, the city sold the double-barreled cannon, but bought it back in the 1890s and installed it in front of the city hall as a local landmark. It still points northward as a symbolic gesture of defiance against the North. And if you open the show notes and click the link to this article, there's a picture of this double-barreled cannon. It looks like it does exactly what the article describes it does. Talk to anyone about ghosts or hauntings and invariably images of abandoned old houses with dilapidated features or conditions will spring to mind. Spectral-looking people with manic laughs or clanking chains are another popular image people have often had of ghosts or spirits. A jet airliner is not something that immediately comes to mind, except those who know about Eastern Airlines Flight 401. This story is from HistoricMysteries.com, and it's by Les Hewitt. Flight 401, The Ghost Crew of Eastern Airlines. 1972 was drawn to a close when a routine flight from JFK, New York to Miami departed at 9.20 p.m. with 30-year-old veteran pilot Captain Bob Loft at the controls. The other flight crew members were First Officer John Stockhill, a flight engineer, and Donald Lewis Repo, an aircraft mechanic and flight engineer. There were 10 flight attendants in the main cabin serving 163 passengers. Eastern Airlines Flight 401 encountered no problems while cruising between the two cities. Flight 401's chain of problems began on the approach to Florida, two hours after departure. The aircraft, a Lockheed L-1011-1 TriStar jet, seemed to have an issue with the front nose gear. The signal inside the cockpit had not illuminated as it should have. Despite the crew's attempts to lower the landing gear, the signal that it was down and locked failed to appear. Loft abandoned the landing and informed air traffic control of the issue. ATC put the plane into a holding pattern over the Everglades. On board the aircraft, all members of the flight crew worked solely on their problem. With the autopilot engaged, the malfunctioning light was dismantled by two members of the crew. The third, Repo, used a porthole to try and get a visual on the gear. It was quite possible that the landing gear was in the correct configuration. The lack of confirmation from the interior landing light signal so consumed the entire crew's attention 
that none of them noticed that one of them had inadvertently switched off the autopilot. Worse, none of them noticed that the jet had been steadily losing altitude. Perhaps that may not have made much difference. Outside of the aircraft, there wasn't much in the way of visual cues and city lights were non-existent. The crew did finally notice the situation taking place, but nowhere near in time to prevent the inevitable. Flight 401 crash-landed into the Everglades at over 200 miles an hour. According to the National Transportation Safety Board, the main fuselage broke into four main sections and many other smaller pieces on impact. This killed the first officer instantly. Burning jet fuel engulfed the aircraft as it plowed through the swamp. The aircraft disintegrated, scattering wreckage over an area approximately 1,600 feet long by 300 feet wide. The NTSB also reported that 67 passengers survived the carnage and 94 perished, as did two of the cabin crew. Captain Bob Loft survived the impact but was so severely injured that he died during the rescue efforts. Don Repo survived long enough to reach the hospital, but he also proved to be too badly injured. The disaster of this flight still remains as one of the worst in American aviation history. Not long after the devastating crash, stories began to emerge in the Eastern Airlines community of unexplained encounters with some of the crew from Flight 401. Flight crews and passengers on other similar aircraft in the Eastern Airlines fleet came forward with stories of sightings of Bob Loft and Don Repo. At first, witnesses reported nothing more severe than standing in the aisles, occupying the galley and cockpit. Reports began to take on a much more sinister overtone, at least in the eyes of the witnesses involved. This witness, a female passenger, described an ashen-looking person sitting in one of the seats. She described him as dazed and unresponsive. She was so worried about his appearance that she summoned an attendant to investigate further. The man vanished before their very eyes and those of several other passengers. The original witness so was distressed that several of the cabin crew had to forcibly restrain her. It took a while, but the female passenger eventually calmed down. She was shown photos of several of the flight staff, and she picked out Don Repo. This was not the only sighting registered. Another flight was being subjected to pre-flight checks when Bob Loft was spotted wandering around the undercarriage. Loft even spoke to the ground crew, insisting that no checks were required, as he had already done them. The pilot of this flight was so unnerved by all of this that he canceled the flight. Captain Bob Loft is often earmarked as the notorious subject of this haunting, but the truth is that Don Repo is far more active and more regularly witnessed. One time, a working flight attendant insisted that she saw an engineer working to repair an oven. When word of this reached the only engineer on board of that particular flight, he denied ever fixing the oven and went so far as to say that it didn't even need fixing in the first place. As in other reports, the flight attendant selected Repo's photo from a choice offered to her. Another pilot on another flight was seriously concerned when he heard knocking coming from beneath the cockpit itself. Worried that something was wrong with the aircraft or one of its systems, the pilot opened up the compartment trap door. Imagine his surprise when he came face to face with Don Repo. Surprise turned to horror when Repo disappeared before the pilot's eyes. Undeterred, the pilot investigated further and did find a problem that may have caused a serious accident if it went unnoticed. Repo seemed to have a knack of turning up in the oddest of places. A crawlspace beneath a cockpit is one thing, a galley oven is quite another. An attendant of TriStar 318 was so shocked to see Repo looking back at her that she called other members of the cabin crew to confirm the sighting. The flight engineer on duty during this flight was a personal friend to Repo and instantly recognized the face as that of his deceased friend. According to all present, Repo then warned them about a fire on board. At the time, not much notice was taken. Later on, during the flight though, problems with the engine all stemmed from a fire that no one knew about. The final leg of the flight was canceled as a result of this fire. The reports were given by experienced and trustworthy pilots and crew. We consider them significant. The appearance of the dead flight engineer was confirmed by the flight engineer. 
Flight Safety Foundation. Witnesses include pilots, various other members of Eastern Airlines staff, and their passengers. One other witness has also come forward with a similar story that adds validity to the others simply because of who he was at the time. Bob Loft appeared before the vice president of Eastern Airlines in first class. The pair conversed briefly before Loft faded from sight. At first, the VP just assumed that this was the captain of the flight he was on. Many of the accounts share similar characteristics. Whenever either Loft or Repo make an appearance, they tend to be lifelike and look like just another person. More than a single person has often been present at the time, whether by accident or design. One curious aspect to these sightings is that people always saw one or the other. Loft and Repo have never been reported on the same flight by the same witness at the same time. Another link between the sightings and the aircraft involved could be the corporate decision to use undamaged parts of Flight 401 on other jets in the fleet. Some believe that Eastern Airlines cannibalized and reused pieces of the wreckage in other airliners. If this was true, then perhaps they recycled more than just aircraft parts. Officially, Eastern Airlines denied anything was wrong with their aircraft or personnel. At no time would officials of the company allow or condone any attempt to investigate the reports. While all this was very much in the public domain, reports circulated that aircraft engineers quietly removed any materials they had reused from the crash. The sightings apparently stopped once this was all done. The company folded in 1991 and is perhaps still better known for some of the more compelling and credible paranormal encounters to date. The majority of the witnesses are the most professional of professional people, and simply not really the sort of people to invent the stories that they tell. With their very careers on the line, each witness must be totally certain what they saw is what they saw. That alone adds credibility to their accounts. Here's another one from historicmysteries.com, again by Les Hewitt. The Cooper Family Photo Ever since the camera was invented, hundreds or thousands of images have shown something odd within the framing of the shot. A lot of these occurred without the knowledge of either the photographers or the subjects of the snapshot itself. Many of the more famous ghost photographs came about by the photographer being in the right place at the right time, mostly without even realizing it. One of the more recent examples of this came to light in or around 2009. From the moment this photograph entered the public domain, debate has raged on its authenticity. This photograph was said to have been taken sometime during the 1950s on the day that the whole family moved into a new home. Mr. Cooper had Mrs. Cooper, Grandma Cooper, and both children pose for a standard family portrait. What nobody realized during the exposure was that there was a fifth subject captured in the photograph. When the picture was developed, the trespasser was found on the left-hand side of the photograph, either falling from or hanging from the ceiling. Mr. Cooper was said to have been adamant that nobody else was in the frame when he took the photograph that night. None of the subjects were aware of their spooky-looking visitor either, as all were posing happily as one might expect. That was the basis behind this now-famous photo. Assuming that this Cooper family photo was not, as some insist, a modern Photoshop design, then who else appeared in the shot? Could this be an apparition of a former owner or tenant of the house? Nobody could answer that question. Perhaps an alternative explanation is that this image came about as an example of a double exposure. When the photograph was examined more closely, a process called vignetting was discovered on the corners of the picture. While this effect can be the result of lens limitations or certain camera settings, these examples appear too uniform in nature for it to be some random event without manipulation from appropriate software, such as Photoshop or PaintShop. Critics also point to the shadows of the subject, insisting that they fall in a direction not according to the given light sources available. These arguments indicate either deception on the part of someone or an honest mistake when faced with an unfortunate double exposure. A hoax or deliberate fabrication would have to be done by someone. 
The photograph was reportedly uploaded onto the World Wide Web on November 14, 2009 by Sam Gowen. Once this photograph appeared on Ligotti.net, a fan site for author Thomas Ligotti, titled Family Gathering, an investigation concluded that Sam was not responsible for its creation. Within months, the photo was doing the internet rounds on many other paranormal sites. Xavier Ortega posted it on the website Ghost Theory, but denied being responsible for its design. The outcome of this uploading did bring this photo to a much wider audience than it had before. The backstory of the Texan Cooper family seemed to have been announced sometime after this, first appearing in 2013. Photographers have also speculated why this image was so poorly framed. The obvious subjects were the immediate family, but the image isn't centered on them. It has been suggested that the original image was cropped sometime after development and that the family originally took center stage on the portrait. This could be true if the picture is genuine, but ever since the photo was revealed, there's been little to no talk about the negatives. That might arouse some suspicion and lend weight to the hoax idea. Whether this is a real image, Photoshop work of art, or a simple camera aberration, it is an intriguing image that will surely be around quite a few years, appearing in YouTube Top 10 Strange Photograph Countdowns on a regular basis. The Edo period in Japan, 1603 to 1867, was a prosperous time for the Japanese people. For most of this era, Japan was cut off almost completely from the outside world. No trading, traveling, migrating, or immigrating occurred during these couple hundred years. A total detachment from the young world, which was barely becoming aware of all its distant inhabitants, their customs, practices, and religions. To the Japanese, this isolation allowed them to live war-free and instead focus on their culture, art, and economic state. From the website ghosttheory.com, the mysterious case of the Utsuro boom. This story is by Xavier Ortega. During the Edo period, we begin to see Japanese folklore spread like wildfire throughout the island. Maybe the product of the isolation and boredom? Or maybe that's just human nature. The stories kept making their way from the shores to the small inland villages. One of these stories in particular makes many ufologists ask the question, did Japan have an alien encounter of the third kind during the Edo period? This is the story of Japan's Utsuro Boon, or Hollowed Ship. The year was 1803, and a few fishermen of the Hirasha Kahama shore which is located in the northeast coast of Japan, were just about to relax from a hard day's work when they spotted something strange coming toward the shore. From a distance, the men spotted what appeared to be a weird-looking boat. The object seemed to have been aimlessly drifting through the Pacific Ocean. As it drifted closer and closer to the shore, the men decided to venture out into the waters and have a closer look at this boat. Cautiously, but more intrigued, the fishermen slowly glide towards the object as the tide helps bring it in. As soon as they were close enough, they noticed that this was no ordinary boat, at least nothing like they've ever seen before. The men quickly decide that they must inspect this strange vessel and tow it to shore. With a little guidance, they manage to drag the three by five meters wide vessel onto a safe spot on the beach. By now, more people were gathered around, curious to see what was inside this strange vessel. The men quickly surrounded it and began a close inspection of the construction materials. From what is known, the description of the upper part of this vessel resembled bamboo wood. It appeared to be very smooth and strong, with a coat of red paint that covered the entire top part. Also on top were several glass or crystal windows that allowed them to peer into the vessels inside. These windows were covered by bars, maybe as ornaments or maybe as a protective measure. As far as the lower part of the vessel, the legend reports it to be constructed out of brass plates. A truly bizarre design for that era. But what was more bizarre was what was on the inside of the vessel. P. 
peering in, the fisherman saw that the inside was decorated by some foreign and strange-looking text. The text, more like geometric symbols, confused the Japanese fishermen. What did they mean? Where did it come from? Those questions would soon disappear as the men make a remarkable find. Inside the vessel, amongst the strange hieroglyphs, there sat a young woman. According to the story, the woman was fairly young and appeared to be only 18 or 20 years of age. She was described as having fiery red hair and eyebrows and very smooth and very pale pink skin color. The men noticed that the woman inside the vessel had long white hair extensions and dressed in clothes that were made of unknown fabrics. As the men quickly gather around the vessel and stare at this stranger, they note that she is clutching on to an elongated box, holding it tightly against her chest. The woman stood up and the men jumped back. There, in plain daylight, the mysterious traveler emerged from the vessel and set foot in Japan's northern shore. The men crowded around the mysterious visitor and they immediately noted that not only did she not look like them, she spoke in some unknown language. She was described as being very friendly and courteous. Both the fisherman and the visitor tried to communicate with one another, but found it to be a futile effort. Sensing that they were not getting anywhere, the fisherman decided to find out why the woman held on to the elongated box so closely, as if guarding the contents of the box with her life. She never allowed anyone to touch the box, and was described as acting suspicious when asked about it. This led the men to later theorize that maybe what she carried in the box was the head of her lover, which would explain her odd reaction to them wanting to look at its contents. But this was just a theory. The men tried again to communicate with the visitor, and she too tried to exchange information. After trying to communicate, the fisherman reported that the woman apparently had given up and climbed back into the Yutsuro boon and retreated back into the cold waters that brought her to their world. Of course, trying to find an explanation for old folklore is an impossible task. On one end, history is filled with so many inconsistencies and fables that it becomes difficult at times to distinguish imagination from reality. On the other hand, why is it that we, as modern citizens of the world, feel the need to find scientific explanations for these tales. Narcissism? Curiosity? As I read through several online texts that talked about the legend, a few details of the story sounded a bit familiar. During the Viking Age, the practice of a burial at sea was something sacred to them. The Nordic people would often send the dead into the sea via a small but beautifully decorated boat. Inside with the dead was usually an array of things like relics, weapons, food, and sometimes they would throw in a sacrificed thrall, an unfortunate servant that is supposed to cater to her master in the afterlife. The thralls go through a ritual of eating, drinking, and fornicating before being sacrificed by a stab to the chest and setting her adrift in the boat. Of course, the Viking Age was hundreds of years before the Yutsuro Boon incident, so it is highly dubious that this strange visitor that landed in Japan's shore was from the Nordic territories. But we're just talking similarities here. Another similarity to this story that popped in my head was the story of Og, the ancient Greek who gave birth to the Greek hero Telephus. Og's father had been told by some oracle that his grandson would one day overthrow him and become ruler kind alias was to have none of that. Og and her baby were put in a small crate-like vessel and set adrift into the endless sea. But you see, these are all just similarities in the stories themselves. The origins of all three of these stories are separated by culture, race, vast distances in geography, and the most important factor, time. Could it be possible that the ancient Greek story made its way into the insular Japanese society? Was the story of the Utsuro boon born out of broken translations? In 1997, a Japanese professor became fascinated with the tale of the mysterious traveler and decided to launch his own investigation. Dr. Kazuo Tanaka from Gifu University in Tokyo concluded that the story was only a myth. He concluded that it was a combination of folklore and wild imaginations. Hardly a conclusion at all. So then, what do we make of this story? 
Could it have been an encounter with a floating UFO or USO? Could the mysterious red-haired woman have floated across the Pacific Ocean from America in some makeshift vessel? Or was she a visitor from another world, possibly from outside our galaxy or a world that exists in the depths of the Pacific Ocean? One thing's for sure. The story of the Utsuro Boon will forever remain a mystery. The music you heard in that story was called For the Girls in Kyoto, and it's by Brooklyn-based guitarist and composer Vlad Kuyujiklu. Check out his website, yenninostalgy.com, or search Yenny Nostalgy on Spotify for more of his work. Both of those links are also in the show notes for this episode. Thanks a lot for providing that music, Vlad. I really do appreciate it. And one more order of business before we go. I'm trying out something new with this episode. I'm about to roll the outro, but if you stick around until after that, there is one more bonus story at the very end of this show. That concludes episode 13 of Curseland. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed. As always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show, you're welcome to send those suggestions to feedback at curse.land. Till next time, I'll talk to y'all later. And this is another story from the book 41 Strange. It's titled Peculiar Solutions Co. Alan unsteadily stepped off the train with his lightweight luggage. His face was dreadfully pale. He shaded his eyes with his hands and blinked against the snow's painful glare. There was a sign. Welcome to Rye, New Hampshire. Alan tightened his coat, lifting up his collar to block the wind, and walked to the end of the snowy platform. Suddenly, something caught his attention. A milk-white Cadillac hissing softly in the parking lot. It was a little hard at first for Alan to make out the car. It was lost in the chalky backdrop. Embossed on the rear window was a peculiar white key. Alan crept closer. Only a hand showed out the driver's window. Hello? Alan ventured. A raspy voice spoke from inside the car. Glazer? Alan raised the volume on his hearing aid. Are you Alan Glazer? The voice came again. Indeed, Alan muttered, his lips shivering with cold. A small man popped his head out the window, his eyes narrowed, sizing up Alan. Get in, he said, cranking up the engine, which coughed sickly in the icy cold. Alan slid into a corner of the white leather back seat. Twenty minutes passed in a jiffy. The Cadillac coasted along a bleak pebble beach blanketed by snow powder. Alan's breath steamed up in his window as he watched the bitter, wintry ocean flashing by. The waves churned tumultuously, lashing themselves. He imagined for a moment that the tortured waters were aching more terribly than his own soul. He turned to the windshield, looking over the driver's bony shoulder. In the distance, a long, meandering road suddenly appeared out of nowhere. The driver stomped on the accelerator. They roared up the road as it got narrower and narrower heading to some unseen point, some secret place that lay ahead. Towering balsam fir trees lurched over them in this wilderness. The driver swerved onto an unplowed path. Alan watched the deep snow flatten under the tire chains as they spit out globs of chunky ice crystals. He swiveled to the rear window. Behind him now there was just whiteness, mesmerizing whiteness, like an endless eye with no pupil. The Cadillac abruptly came to a stop in front of a heavy iron gate. A heavenly white key dominated the peak. The key split in half as the metal bars opened to let the car pass. Unnerving chills ran down Alan's scalp. The sun was dying down as Alan listened carefully to the options regarding his fate. My name is Bremer. I am assigned to your peculiar solution said a fat man with dark glasses sitting at a mirrored desk on the third floor's administrative chamber. Alan sat across from him. 
nervously resetting the volume on his hearing aid. Let me start by explaining the cost factor, Bremer said. I still haven't signed anything, Alan interjected. Bremer smiled. You are not a client yet, officially, but your presence here makes it difficult for me to think otherwise. Alan looked down uneasily. Now, now, consider yourself lucky, Mr. Glazer. We at Peculiar Solutions Company have a long waiting list of patients from all over the world, all anxiously awaiting to be in your shoes right now, all dying for a chance to be cured. Bremer casually flipped through a red file marked Alan Stewart Glazer, age 39, born July 19, 2094. Mr. Glazer, you came to us because you are suffering terribly, days and nights, agonizing for years, listening to the sounds of your entrails, distorted, grotesque, warped, in your left inner ear. It's driving you to madness. He approached Alan, his fingers brushing along his hearing aid. Even with that hearing device, the sounds of your entrails keep you awake through the long, desperate nights of insomnia, like a spider crawling through your ear canal. So you toss and turn, pretending it's not there. But it is. The spider is still there. It's tapping on your eardrum with its legs, and the vibrations of the legs get louder and louder, vicious, insupportable. Alan let out a tense breath. Bremer continued, Your eardrum was hopelessly shattered after you fell off the ski lift in Beaver Creek, Colorado, and incurred a skull fracture. Isn't that what happened, Mr. Glazer? That's right. Alan's voice was faint and trembling. I understand you attempted two suicides. You've seen dozens of surgeons, but they can't operate on you. Very unfortunate. Alan nodded somberly, his shoulders sloped. Bremer's firm hand clawed Alan's arm. Join Peculiar Solutions, and you'll never hear those awful spider sounds in your ear again. I promise you. I, I don't know, Alan hesitated. My ear, maybe it can still be fixed. He ran a hand through his shock of prematurely white hair. Let's not kid ourselves, Mr. Glazer. You'll keep hearing your internal organs. It'll just get worse over time. You have to do something about it. Traditional methods will never suffice. Come on, it would be a real pity to miss this rare opportunity. He handed Alan a pen and guided his hand on the contract's dotted line. Alan sighed, exhaling. Perfect, said Bremer, snapping up the contract and perusing it under his desk lamp. You chose PSI service number 217. It cost $250,000. We now have permission to deduct the amount directly from your bank account for your convenience. Bremer slipped Alan's file inside his top desk drawer. He locked it with a loud clang that made Alan wince. I assure you, Mr. Glazer, no need for second thoughts. You made the right decision to enroll with us. Our solutions are an art form. You won't regret it. Sleep well tonight. You picked a fine day tomorrow to say farewell to your pain. He took Alan gently by the hand, like a child. You will be sedated in the next room. Follow me. The next morning, Alan woke up, slowly coming out of his sedation. Two eyes gazed at him, two different colored eyes. One white, the other blue. The moon, the earth. Alan was traveling through outer space in an airtight capsule rigged with exterior flashing lights. It was shaped like a white key and marked P. Salco. There was a small square window for Alan's eyes to see into the depths of space. The capsule was equipped with an advanced patented mechanism, a dynamo uniquely manufactured by Peculiar Solutions to produce a limitless reserve of oxygen. It transformed space hydrogen atoms and dark matter into breathable air in this controlled environment. The module was also carefully insulated to avoid any danger of overheating. Alan's right arm was connected intravenously to a plasma food source, a dense, hyper-concentrated infusion of survival nutrients, vitamins, and H2O. It was programmed to drip ultra-slowly and to last well beyond a normal lifespan. There was a backup intravenous line on Alan's left arm in case the first failed. 
Stainless steel braces held Alan's limbs down securely. Tubes connected to his groin and rectum relieved his waist into space. The company had guaranteed him eternal silence. Ah, yes, they had overlooked no small detail to ensure Alan's particular peace and quiet. They were meticulous in their fussy ways. They lived up to their rep, that much was certain. On a voyage to infinity, a distraught Alan Glazer drifted off into the vacuum of the hushed abyss. You maniacs. Sick maniacs. This is not the cure I signed up for. I want out of this, Alan screamed in utter primal terror. But no sound came from his throat. His vocal cords had been severed to stop his voice from disturbing his ear. And it did not stop there. His brain, very conscious... Alan looked down in horror at the company logo pajamas he was wearing. Through the cotton cloth, he could actually see his internal organs as they pulsed inside his body. His chest skin had been switched to an artificial epidermis, transparent. They'd disemboweled him. They'd replaced all of his internal organs. These organs glowed. They were manufactured, noiseless ones. <laughs> 